This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hi everyone, this is Margarida from Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Andrea Carmine Bellin. Dr. Andrea is a principal investigator at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, and the Carmine Bellin Lab aims to study primary headache disorders such as cluster headache by identifying, characterizing, and modeling genetic markers within the human genome. Thank you so much, Dr. Andrea, for letting me interview you today. It's a great pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. We like to start by asking people, when did you first get interested in neuroscience? What's your background story? Well, I think, so I'm also working a lot on genetics. I've always been a bit obsessed with the genetics and heredity, even as a child, looking at if a friend had the similar nose as his father and stuff like that. So genetics has always been there for me. Uh, but then... Uh, uh, after high school, when I took um, uh, the biomedicine program at Karolinska Institute, uh, I thought the most interesting course was neuroscience. Uh, so from then, I tried to combine neuroscience and genetics. Like in, through my career, career, it's been a, a thread. <laughs> okay, so you already had like a fascination for molecular biology and science, and then you pursued your bachelor's in biomedicine. And then how did you get in contact then with research? Was it something that was already on your mind? Was it through your bachelor's program? It was through my bachelor's program. I, when I started, uh, so when I took it uh, at Karolinska Institute, this biomedicine program was brand new. I was the first student taking this program. We were only 11 uh, graduate, graduating in the end. And at that time, it wasn't divided on, through bachelor and master. It was like a one course, four years, but it's changed since then. Uh, this was in... I took it in 1995 and graduated in 1999. Uh, so, uh, uh, and through that, I, we had the mentorship. I had a mentor, uh, Professor Maria Anret, and she was working on genetics. And uh, uh, I started uh, in her lab as a summer student, and that uh, developed into a, a master's thesis uh, focusing on Parkinson's disease and genetics. So that was like a perfect uh, project for me. And then I wanted to continue as a PhD student. Okay. And can you tell us a bit more about that project? Well, the, the project, uh, I mean, this was in the beginning of the genetic, it felt like, at, at least if you compare it to, to now. Uh, so we collected blood samples from uh, patients with Parkinson's disease and controls and um, prepared DNA. And then we did radioactive sequencing, so something that you don't do anymore, uh, looking at genes that we thought would be interesting for this condition. Um, so we only had like 20 samples in the beginning. So it's uh, comparing it to what we do now, it's a very small study, but it took a lot of time to do in this uh, uh, radioactive sequencing. Um, we also had brain tissue from uh, postmortem tissue from patients and control, looking at gene expressions and genes that we were interested in, uh, especially one gene called NER1. Uh, and um, we also tried to develop animal models for these uh, conditions, looking at mice models. So that was a major focus of my thesis. This was at master's level, but then you were telling me that you progressed into a PhD project with the same project, right? Exactly. So I developed further. So this was something I was working on for at least uh, then four years in the end. Okay. And is there any uh, particular result that you got at this point that you were very challenged by or surprised by? 
Oh, good question. Uh, well, uh, at this time, it was just complicated to, to, to get a lot of samples uh, to get. The, so I'm not clinically trained, but to find neurologists that are interesting to give us uh, samples and have, have time to, to participate in, in research. So that was a big like bottleneck for this research, uh, getting more samples to get more power. Uh, so working on Parkinson's disease, I mean, it's a, a major neurological conditions and a lot of research groups are working on it uh, all over the world, so it was very hard for a small Swedish team to uh, take place in this big area um, at the time. So the, I think that was a big challenge uh, at the time. And of course, get funding, at, or that's something more after my PhD to, to find the funding. At that time, it was my supervisor in finding the funding, but uh, I think uh, I noticed those challenges already as a PhD student. Interesting. Yeah, I can be a first encounter with these type of challenges. And uh, until here, until the end of your PhD, you were always focused on research. Did you like the clinical component in a way that your projects had? Or was the thing that was driving you the most to do research? Was it uh, just being in a lab doing uh, experiments or was it more the clinical focus, trying to understand disease? Both, actually. I mean, I just love being in the lab. When I did my master's thesis, I mean, it was one thing to doing a taking this biomedicine program, sitting in class, going to lectures, but um, and having different labs. But then being with a supervisor in a lab, learning new techniques, I thought that was so fantastic. And this international environment, I just loved it. Uh, but then I felt like the projects I've been involved in, they had to have a clinical component. Uh, otherwise, they're not so interesting to me. I really, it has to be connected to a disorder. Uh, that's uh, also something that uh, during all, all my research career, it's uh, always been uh, linked to, to a condition, medical condition. And so then you finished your PhD and you thought, OK, I will continue through the research path or how, how did that choice go for you? At that time, I thought, oh, maybe I should go to the industry. I had a bit of a look around, but didn't find anything really interesting. And I thought, should I go abroad? I got an offer at Columbia University. Uh, and I went there and, and I felt like, oh, but uh, the, the thing was that my supervisor, my closest supervisor, I had several supervisors, but the, the one that I worked with the most, uh, Dr. Sylvia Paddock, she left uh, the lab because she, she was doing a postdoc in, in the States. So I, I sort of had opportunity to develop her projects uh, uh, instead of so uh, leaving. I could, I, I could stay in the lab. Um, so in the end, I did not the traditional uh, research journey. I, I stayed at Karolinska Institute. I've done that for all my research career, um, which I think is a bit rare. Uh, on the other side, uh, the Karolinska Institute, they recently developed this uh, network for women in science and education called VICE. Uh, I think it was only last year. And they have a seminar series where uh, female professors give, uh, uh, they are interviewed about their career. And each one of them always start by saying, oh, I didn't have the typical research career. So that's, I don't, it seems like, so I wonder what is the typical research career? But uh, for me, it, uh, it ended out well. Uh, instead of going to other labs, I sort of re recruited people from other labs with, with new techniques and have a lot of international collab collaborations. Uh, and I also changed the field uh, a bit. But uh, as a, my first part as a postdoc, I continued with, with Parkinson's disease, and also a bit on Alzheimer's disease and schizophrenia and bipolar disease were also involved in this in this research. Uh, so uh, in the end, it, and I got uh, grants, especially uh, there's a, this foundation called the Swedish Brain Foundation, and I've been very supportive through my research since I uh, had my PhD. Uh, so they made it possible for me to, to continue at Karolinska Institute. So that's why 
a state in Stockholm in Sweden. No, but uh, that's, I mean, it's interesting that I, first of all, I didn't know about um, the Women uh, Research uh, Initiative in, in Karolinska. It's great to hear about that. But uh, so I, I think for a lot of women, in fact, probably if there was a, a more opportunities to stay and to stay in such good institutes as the Karolinska, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people would, would take it if you like doing the research where you are. And if you have the opportunity, I think that can also be a a great thing for people to focus on developing what they like developing. And so can you tell us a bit more then on the science aspect? What were the things that you were doing? I know this is all uh, a bit on the same topic, but I'm curious to know what are the type of results that you got and a bit of your story more from the result side. Well, when it comes to, to Parkinson's disease, so uh, we're very interested in the genetics. There is a genetic component. A lot of patients report that they have a close relative with the disease. So I think it's around 30%. And there are these clear, very monogenic forms, but the more idiopathic form is, of course, the more common form. Uh, so we looked at both the genetic risk factors, that the, a genetic marker in a gene that then would be more frequent in patients than controls. But I always thought it's very interesting to look at uh, genetic prote protective factors as well. So that's something we also looked at in, uh, in, the, in these studies. But uh, I, had, uh, I have a migraine in my family, so I've always wanted to look at the migraine and the, the genetics in that uh, disorder, in headache disorders in general. Um, and when you see, I mean, a lot of friends also have migraine and they say that, oh, my father has migraine, my mother or cousin. So there is a very strong genetic component. And uh, so through the years, I've been looking for different uh, migraine projects and uh, at the time uh, I, I got the contact with the Swedish twin registry that's the biggest twin registry in, in the world and they had genetic data from migraine patient, patients um, uh, and I was uh, able to, to get that data so and then I, I started in this, in this um, headache field I moved on from from the Parkinson's field yeah it's interesting that it came also from a personal perspective one of the things that I'm interested in, when you talk about migraine and headaches there are different types and you focus on cluster headaches can you talk a bit about these different types of migraines and why is it that you're focused on cluster headache yes of course so I mean migraine is the most common primary headache disorder more common among women a very strong genetic component and um when I started this project, I looked for clinicians and neurologists working on a headache and to see, can we collaborate? Uh, then I found this um, uh, very experienced and uh, professor, um, associate professor Elisabeth Waldenin, who has been working on cluster headache for uh, many years. Um, and she wanted to do a, a project together. Uh, so that's why I got interested in cluster headache, which is um, also a primary headache, but it's more common among men than women. Uh, but there's also a genetic component in this, uh, up to 20% report that they have a close relative with the disease. But since it's, uh, it's not that rare, but if you compare it to migraine, it's considered a rare disorder. So not so much research has been done on this um, disease. And that's why I thought it would be so interesting. There were so many things that we could do that hadn't been done before. Uh, and so another... so. A migraine headache attack usually lasts for more than three hours, while cluster headache attacks last for between 15 minutes and three hours. So they're shorter attacks uh, and they're one-sided and they're extremely painful. Um, they're close to the eye region. That's where you feel the most pain. And they're also accompanied by, with um, ipsilateral autonomic symptoms like uh, reddening of the eye, runny nose. And these patients also get uh, restless when they have these attacks. And you can have these attacks uh, several times per day, up to eight times per day. 
And uh, a majority of the patients uh, report that they have their attacks at certain time points uh, during the day, usually at uh, night time. So there are several, several differences uh, if you compare it to, to migraine, but there are also Treatment-wise, um, migraine is most commonly treated with uh, triptans uh, as an acute treatment, and this can also be used for for uh, cluster headache. Uh, but um, and then there are prophylactic treatments uh, for cluster headache, and they differ between cluster headache and migraine. Uh, for instance, lithium can be used as a prophylactic treatment for cluster headache, but we don't know why. I mean, this is something that you use for bipolar disease. You don't know why it works there either, but but it works. It works um, and uh, for for either migraine or cluster headache, there is no cure. So we still don't know why you get these disorders and how to best treat them. There are treatments, but they don't work perfectly. And there are a lot of side effects. And for some patients, they don't work at all. Um, so more research needs to be done, both at, for migraine and, and cluster headache. But when it comes to migraine, uh, cluster headache, uh, at that time, this was almost 10 years ago, and not so much had been done. And people had been doing, doing research on very small uh, patient materials ex- when it comes to genetics. When you do genetic studies, you need at least 500 patients to do a proper genetic study. But most were done on patient samples with 100 patients and 100 controls. So you have a very low power and results couldn't be replicated. If you look at the, in an Italian study, you couldn't see it in Sweden and around. So that's why we started this um, project uh, to get more samples. Interesting. I, I didn't know the extent of, of cluster headaches and some of these details. Thank you for sharing that. And so maybe I'll, I'll go one step before. You were doing your postdoc. You started uh, looking into these other research more focused on headaches and migraines. And But then how was it the transition from postdoc to principal investigator? It was definitely a challenge. I mean, it was mostly, I guess, uh, funding-wise. It's that's, uh, I guess, for every researcher in the world, you have to get enough funding. Uh, but uh, I managed to get uh, funding and also PhD students, and that's the way to sort of <laughs> develop in the, your academic career at, uh, at Karolinska Institute to, to eventually become a group leader. And uh, at, at least Karolinska Institute, it's important to get the grant for something called the Swedish Research Council. And when you have that, you, you're sort of officially a, could be a, a PI and uh, also to become an associate professor. We do a lot of teaching at Karolinska Institute. So I teach medical students, dental students, um, and that's also part of developing in your academic career. But uh, when I had been a postdoc for, I think, like seven years, I also had three kids during this period. So it's difficult to say when when it started. But in 2011, I was like an official PI at my department at Karolinska Institute. Okay, okay. So then you've been a, a PI for already quite a while now. And how was this? Because I'm sure even as a postdoc, having uh, PhD students, it's one thing. But then once you have your group, I'm sure new challenges arrive. How do you feel like it has been for you, maybe from more of a mentoring perspective? Definitely. I, I've, I've been both a mentor for like biomedicine program at Karolinska, but uh, and I had a lot of PhD students and summer students. It's something that I really enjoy doing. Um but uh, of course, uh, during the during my postdoc, I uh, I had uh, a bit of security security because then I was at in a bigger group with the Professor Lars Olsson. He was my main supervisor as a PhD student, which felt a bit that was a bit secure for me because he had a lot of funding. And um, but then I started to get my own funding, and but we shared lab space and. Uh, and the staff and did different projects together. Um, but the, during this period, that then I had the possibility to take my own um, PhD students. Um, so my first one, she defended in was in 2011 uh, as a main supervisor, and uh, it's really 
fantasy people grow and uh, find their own careers. Yeah. So if you look in, as a perspective of these uh, 12 years as having your own lab and having your focus of uh, research, your focus is on, on headaches. But what are the different lines of research that you've had and that you have uh, right now? Well, so it's mostly both genetics, but we do a lot of epidemiological studies as well, because I think, I think that you can get to know a lot more about the disorder, just collecting data from patients. Um, so one line of research we've been doing is looking at uh, sex differences and uh, especially then cluster headache. Um, and uh, that has been a really interesting journey um, since uh, so cluster headache has been then um, thought to be a typical male disorder. Um, the ratio used to be like five to one if you compare men and women, but now it's more like two to three. Uh, and uh, there are still clinicians who say to patients, uh, female patients coming to the clinic with typical cluster headache symptoms that no, you can't have cluster headache because you're a woman. Um, but when, uh, so we have looked at uh, more than 800 patients and asked them about their symptoms, age of onset, what treatment they use. And we could see that it was quite um, different. There are differences between men and women. Um, so there are two forms of cluster headache. It's this uh, um, the most common form, which 80 to 90% have. It's called episodic cluster headache. Then you have symptom-free periods of at least three months per year. But then there's the more severe form called chronic cluster headache. Then you don't have these symptom-free periods. And we could see in our Swedish cluster headache cohort that the, there were more female patients that had this chronic form. So they suffered more from this disorder. And they also had different kind of autonomic symptoms. They tend to be more restless. Um, and they had, uh, the f- female uh, tend to say that they, they, their attacks were triggered by sleep, uh, sleep, um, uh, if you have sleep deficiencies, while men said that their attacks were triggered by alcohol. So there were se- several differences. So that's one part that we have been interested in. And then we're also interested in the, the circadian rhythm. Since this disease, then that at least two thirds report that their attacks come at certain time points, usually between two and four. So we want to investigate more about what what is this with the circadian rhythm, um, and should you take treatment at certain time points to get better effects, uh, and so on. We have looked at one gene that's involved in this, uh, the regulation of the circadian rhythm called clock. There are at least 40 genes involved in, in regulating the circadian rhythm, but this clock is one of the key genes. And we could see that uh, a genetic marker that is linked to if that you sleep less, uh, you have a sh- shorter sleep duration, it's also much more common in patients with cluster headaches. So there seems to be a link there. So that's also something we're very interested in. Interesting, interesting. And what is the type of uh, techniques you use in the lab? Because it really feels like you're in the middle of several fields. In You have samples that come from a clinical environment. You do epidemiology, you do genetics. Um, do you also do a bit of more experimental neuroscience? Do you have animal models? What is it that your lab members and you do in the lab? Well, we, we do a lot of cell culture. We take... Uh, skin biopsies from patients and control to culture fibroblasts. Uh, the fibroblasts have a very clear circadian rhythm, so they're very good to, to look at in, in that sense. So we can use them for gene expression and protein expression. And uh, the goal is also to make them into induced pluripotent stem cells and to, to develop neuronal cells to get a more, since this is a disorder of the brain, we want to uh, look at cells more um, related to the disorder. Um, so cell culture is a big thing. Um, we haven't. When it comes to headache, it's difficult with with animal models. Um, you can't ask a rat or mouse 
if they have a headache. But there are things that you can look at if they're more pain sensitive, if they like try to avoid light and sound, which is very typically for migraine. In cluster headache, it's not that typically. Um, cluster headache patients seldom report that they need uh, quiet. They just uh, want to walk around. They, they don't care about the light, really. Uh, but there are some that do. There are, of course, a big variation. Um, but uh, so, so far, we haven't started with any animal research or um, animal facility. But we, we have it in, uh, at Karolinsk Institute. Uh, when I worked with Parkinson's disease, we looked at a lot of locomotion, for example. Um, and, uh, but then, was, of course, we do a lot of gene expressions. We have QPCR equipment and different protein analy- analyzing uh, techniques. Yeah, it's a really interesting combination of different uh, methods. And I also, I didn't know about uh, fibroblasts, fibroblasts and circadian rhythm. So that's a really cool thing. And speaking of the Karolinska, you, you recently became director for the Center uh, for Cluster Headache, also at the Karolinska. So congratulations. Do you, do you want to tell us a bit more what's the goal of this center and uh, what you envision for it? Yes, of course. So uh, we've been funded uh, for quite some time by the Swedish Brain Foundation and also a private foundation called the Melbegård Foundation. And um, this year we were awarded a larger grant from them to establish a center for cluster headache to make it to make the society more aware about the disorder because a lot of people haven't heard about it. Although it, I told you it's not that rare. It's one in 1,000. So uh, just here in, in Sweden, a small country, at least between five and 10,000 people suffer from this disease. Uh, and this uh, center, um, it's a very close collaboration with um, researchers and clinicians um, at Karolinska Institute. We're just next to the Karolinska University Hospital. So we have a very close close collaboration with neurologists and headache specialists. So we uh, do both genetics, but then we also do this looking at sex differences. And we also want to look at treatment effects uh, with the genetic data that we collect from these patients and controls. We want to see if there are genetic markers that are linked to, to, to if you respond to certain treatment or not, or to the side effect. So we're also interested in that area. But um, so this uh, center was established in January 2023, and uh, it will last for at least uh, we have funding for seven years uh, to do different uh, research projects focused on cluster headache. Good, really good. Good that you're establishing this new line of research, which leads me to another question that I wanted to ask you. You have already shared that, uh, for instance, establishing yourself as a PI was, was a challenge. Is there any other challenges that you faced so far that you would like to share? Anything that was maybe even a surprise? Research-wise, the, the, my biggest, I mean, as a researcher, you face different challenges every day that you need to solve um, when it comes to both setting up new techniques, getting materials, finding collaborations and stuff. But the, my like biggest challenge was to perform a genome-wide association study for cluster headache because that's been a dream. Uh, I had a dream already working on Parkinson's disease, but then it was already done by other groups with larger materials. And for migraine, it was done as well already in 2010. Um, but then in 2014, thought we have to do this for cluster headache, uh, screening genetic markers all over gen- the genome, comparing patients and control. Um, so uh, starting this, uh, talking to other researchers in other parts of the world working on cluster headache, people like almost like laughed at us. So why would you do that? What do you think you're going to find? Um, but we thought we, we have to do this. Uh, I think that's something you need to do for all, res- uh, all disorders. So we started collecting, um, first doing an ethical permit to, to collect uh, samples, uh, finding clinicians who wanted to be part of this, finding funding, uh, setting up techniques, 
but also most importantly, finding uh, patients with cluster headache that wanted to participate in our studies because that's uh, extremely important. And we're so grateful for all these uh, study participants that want to donate blood for our research and answer our questionnaires. Um, and so uh, doing these kind of genome-wide association studies, the GWAS, you have to have large uh, sample numbers, at least 500, and Sweden is a small country, so we think we have to team up with another lab somewhere else. So we found a team in the UK with uh, Professor Manit Mataro and Professor Henry Holden, and they were also interested in cluster headache and doing a genome-wide association study, so we could combine our samples and we could find uh, four chromosomal regions that were uh, strongly linked to cluster headache on chromosome 1 and 2 on chromosome 2 and 1 on chromosome 6. So this was very fascinating for us. We were so happy about these results. Um, and then there was a Dutch and Norwegian team that found the same results. So that made uh, this even stronger. Um, so we were able to, um, uh, with these groups, we established an international consortium of cluster headache genetics. And uh, so we are now uh, involving more groups and doing a meta-GWAS and also including groups from other parts of the world, uh, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea. So this has been uh, major, it was a major challenging, yeah, challenge in the, in the beginning, but uh, I think now uh, a big success. So now we're very eager to investigate these loci more carefully. What genes are there in these regions? What do they do? How are they connected to cluster headache? Uh, and so on. Can we develop animal models from these genes? And so on. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I cannot even imagine the complexity of establishing such a big collaboration and also standardizing everything. And um, yeah, so uh, out of curiosity, is there any regional differences that you've been able to observe from since now you have all of these uh, data from different countries and different uh, populations? And not yet. We're not there yet. It's, the the meta was has, has so far only been done on European materials and that's been very similar. But it would be very interesting to see how it looks in the eastern part of the world and the, like in, in this, um, North North America, South America. So we're trying to collect uh, uh, samples and uh, initiate collaborations with these parts of the world too. It's always complicated to get this international consortium having meetings with the different time zones, but uh, we're on their way on the way to do it. To be continued, yeah. And uh, this this is also a perfect segue to something that I like asking people, which is uh, if you envision your lab in the next five, ten years, what is it uh, that you would like to keep working on? So, I mean, I'm sure you would love to keep working on these topics, but is there anything also that you're still not doing right now, but that you'd like to go maybe sometime in the future or even as a mentor or as researcher in the communities? Well, I hope, uh, something I really hope that we could do is like, do like clinical trials in the future to try different and treatments that are based on our uh, results from the GWAS that they find new treatment uh, targets, for instance. So that's something I really dream about. And to further develop this center, to make it bigger. Um, our uh, goal is to have... Uh, like in Denmark, they've been very good at headache research for many years, and they have something called the Danish Headache Center. Uh, it was established already in 2001, and they have a a big building outside Copenhagen where they do both the research, they have a clinic, they do clinical trials, um, and that's sort of our goal to have in, in Sweden as well. Okay, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. I, I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to do it. And uh, given that you've been in academia for so long until now, what is it, some of the things that you've noticed that are good and bad about uh, academia and uh, the culture? 
Well, good question. Uh, I, I tend to see that as a woman, you sometimes need to work twice as hard and be twice as good compared to men. It's, uh, but I think it's changing. Uh, that at least from my point of view, from where I'm coming, in, it used to be very male-dominated uh, as PIs, but it's uh, changing now. Uh, so that's something I, I could see in academia. Mm -hmm. Also, then going back to something that you told me before, what about the organization at Karolinska about uh, women in research? Can you tell us a bit about this? Because I think it can be an interesting thing to share, even as an idea for other institutes and research areas. Yeah, so I think it was established in 2021 or 2022. Uh, and they, it's uh, Women in Science and Education. And they have um, lectures and seminars uh, given by professors, uh, female professors, as an inspiration uh, to talk about their career path. Uh, the latest interview was done by the newest uh, president of Karinska Institute, uh, Annika Stman-Wernesson. And uh, they also had a retreat recently um, where uh, female PIs could meet and uh, discuss uh, challenges and um, give tips to each other on the different how to navigate within academia. So I think it's a very good uh, network. No, sounds, sounds really good. One of the things that I saw, I was uh, here thinking about other things to ask you. I thought it was really interesting that you and your lab have uh, all of these different type of social media. And I think that also is interesting and that kind of uh, reflects how you are maybe a mentor and what's the team spirit. And do you want to talk a bit about that? How do you feel as a team leader and the spirit of the team? How do you like keeping things? Well, I always try to be the... The, the boss that I want my, want for myself really <laughs> uh, and I always I think it's very important to encourage and always uh, um, give room for for my team members uh, to give talks at conference for instance so I think that my PhD students actually had have bigger lectures than I ever had <laughs> in that way promoting them in different ways uh, uh, so uh, and I, I hope I try to have a, that we have a, uh, a great atmosphere in the lab uh, so we have all these different social media both to show the society but and also patient we have a close collab collaboration with different patient organizations to show what we're doing in the lab what we're up to um, I think it's important to give an insight on what we do as researcher yeah 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 for sure for sure I totally agree Okay, I, I think we've overviewed a, a lot also your plans for the future. So I sometimes I like to finish with something light. Uh, what is it something that you like doing on your free time? So outside of the science, which is already a lot. Oh, I love uh, traveling, actually. That was been a big uh, interest in my life. Uh, when I ended my PhD studies, uh, I celebrated this with my husband. Uh, not, he was not my husband at the time, but uh, then we went on this uh, uh, round-the-world trip. So that's something I really enjoy. Um, uh, and then also uh, working out. I run a lot. I ran my first marathon last year. So that's something I'm trying to <laughs> do when I have time. <laughs> But uh, traveling uh, is, a, is a big interest for me. Great. Well, I think that's it. Thank you so much. I think we had a beautiful conversation. For sure, I, I also learned a lot about headaches. And um, thank you so much, Dr. Ander, for taking time to talk to me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.